This passage continues David's flight from King Saul. You'll remember Saul's jealousy has been building for the last several chapters, and now David is an outright fugitive. He's on the run. That's where we find him in this text, still on the run from the increasingly unstable and dangerous King Saul. So, follow along with me, beginning in verse 1. It's a lengthy chapter, but we're going to read it together. Starting in verse 1, David's flight from King Saul. This is what the Holy Spirit says to the church through his inspired author. Then David fled from Naoth and Ramah and came and said before Jonathan, What have I done? What is my guilt? And what is my sin before your father that he seeks my life? And he said to him, Far from it, you shall not die. Behold, my father does nothing, either great or small, without disclosing it to me. And why should my father hide this from me? It is not so. But David vowed again, saying, Your father knows well that I have found favor in your eyes. And he thinks, Do not let Jonathan know this, lest he be grieved. But truly, as the Lord lives, and as your soul lives, there is but a step between me and death. Then Jonathan said to David, Whatever you say, I will do for you. David said to Jonathan, Behold, tomorrow is the new moon, and I should not fail to sit at table with the king. But let me go, that I may hide myself in the field till the third day at evening. If your father misses me at all, then say, David earnestly asked leave of me to run to Bethlehem, his city, for there is a yearly sacrifice there for all the clan. If he says, Good, it will be well with your servant. But if he is angry, then know that harm is determined by him. Therefore, deal kindly with your servant, for you have brought your servant into a covenant of the Lord with you. But if there is guilt in me, kill me yourself, for why should you bring me to your father? And Jonathan said, Far be it from you, if I knew that it was determined by my father that harm should come to you, would I not tell you? Then David said to Jonathan, Who will tell me if your father answers you roughly? And Jonathan said to David, Come, let us go out into the field. So they both went out into the field. And Jonathan said to David, The Lord, the God of Israel, be witness. When I have sounded out my father about this time tomorrow or the third day, behold, if he is well disposed toward you, shall I not, send and, shall I not then send and disclose it to you? But should it please my father to do you harm, the Lord do so to Jonathan, and more also if I do not disclose it to you and send you away that you may go in safety. May the Lord be with you as He has been with my father. If I am still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die. And do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. And Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. And Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. Then Jonathan said to him, Tomorrow is the new moon, and you will be missed, because your seat will be empty. On the third day, go down quickly to the place where you hid yourself when the matter was at hand, and remain beside the stone heap. And I will shoot three arrows to the side of it, as though I shot at a mark. And behold, I will send the boy, saying, Go, find the arrows. If I say to the boy, Look, the arrows are in this side of you, take them, then you are to come. For as the Lord lives, it is safe for you, and there is no danger." But if I say to the youth, look, the arrows are beyond you, then go, for the Lord has sent you away. And as for the matter of which you and I have spoken, behold, the Lord is between you and me forever. So David hid himself in the field. And when the new moon came, the king sat down to eat food. 
The king sat on his seat, as at other times, on the seat by the wall. Jonathan sat opposite, and Abner sat by Saul's side, but David's place was empty. Yet Saul did not say anything that day, for he thought, something has happened to him. He is not clean. Surely he is not clean. But on the second day, the day after the new moon, David's place was empty. And Saul said to Jonathan his son, Why has not the son of Jesse come to the meal either yesterday or today? Jonathan answered Saul, David earnestly asked leave of me to go to Bethlehem. He said, Let me go, for our clan holds a sacrifice in the city, and my brother has commanded me to be there. So now, if I have found favor in your eyes, let me get away and see my brothers. For this reason, he has not come to the king's table. Then Saul's anger was kindled against Jonathan, and he said to him, You son of a perverse, rebellious woman, do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? For as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, neither you nor your kingdom shall be established. Therefore send and bring him to me, for he shall surely die. Then Jonathan answered Saul, his father, Why should he be put to death? What has he done? But Saul hurled his spear at him to strike him. So Jonathan knew that his father was determined to put David to death. And Jonathan rose from the table in fierce anger and ate no food the second day of the month, for he was grieved for David because his father had disgraced him. In the morning, Jonathan went out into the field to the, appoint, to the appointment with David and with him a little boy. And he said to his boy, Run and find the arrows that I shoot. As the boy ran, he shot an arrow beyond him. And when the boy came to the place of the arrow that Jonathan had shot, Jonathan called after the boy and said, Is not the arrow beyond you? And Jonathan called after the boy, Hurry, be quick, do not stay. So Jonathan's boy gathered up the arrows and came to his master. But the boy knew nothing. Only Jonathan and David knew the matter. And Jonathan gave his weapons to his boy and said to him, Go and carry them to the city. And as soon as the boy had gone, David rose from beside the stone heap and fell on his face to the ground and bowed three times. And they kissed one another and wept with one another, David weeping the most. Then Jonathan said to David, Go in peace, because we have sworn both of us in the name of the Lord, saying, The Lord shall be between me and you, and between my offspring and your offspring forever. And he rose and departed, and Jonathan went into the city. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord given to us for our good. Let's pray now and ask God's blessing on the preaching of His Word. Father, help us this morning to hear what You have spoken, what You have revealed in the Scriptures concerning Your purposes, concerning Your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and concerning our lives as His people. Father, open our ears and open our minds to hear. Give us hearts that are ready to believe and to obey. Father, give us hearts that are ready to confess and to repent and to turn from where we have fallen short. Father, encourage us, comfort us, sustain us. Pray, Father, that You would give me grace, that I would speak what is true and in accordance with the Scriptures, and that You'd grant Your people discernment. Father, we pray these things confident that You hear us. In Jesus' name, Amen. Well, what a heart-wrenching chapter we have before us this morning in God's Word. If we had to pick one word to sum up the emotion of this passage, perhaps the best choice would be sorrowful. 1 Samuel 20 is heavy with sorrow. 
Here we have Jonathan and David, men who are bound to one another in a profound way. Here we have those men parting company, possibly forever. Did you catch that in verse 42? David and Jonathan don't know if they will ever see one another again. This could be the last goodbye. It's truly a heartbreaking moment. Remember, friends, David is not just a Bible character. He's not just a Bible character designed to teach us morals and life lessons. David was an actual human being. And he experienced life and the full range of emotions that come with life. This is a heartbreaking moment. This is a sorrowful chapter. But while sorrowful captures the emotion of the chapter, there is another word that captures the theme. And that word is covenant. Covenant. There are four scenes to the chapter, and in each one we find some reference to covenant. Look with me. In verse 8, David pleads for Jonathan to deal kindly with him, for you have brought your servant into a covenant of the Lord with you. Then in verse 15, Jonathan extends that covenant to his descendants. It shows up again in verse 23, when Jonathan declares that the Lord is between you and me forever. That's covenantal language. And finally, the last verse, verse 42. The two men separate, taking with them only the promise of covenant. So do you you see the theme running through the chapter? From start to finish, this passage is held together by covenant. And it's this theme of covenant that builds a bridge from David's day to ours. Remember friends, David holds a unique place in redemptive history. It's through David that the Messiah will come. It's from David's line that God will raise up an eternal king for His kingdom. We talked about this a few weeks ago, how David is a type of the Lord Jesus Christ. David points us ahead to King Jesus. And that means there are aspects of the covenant between David and Jonathan that absolutely connect with us. Their covenant pictures for us the kind of devotion that's required to live in God's kingdom. Jonathan, in particular, shows us what it means to lay down your life in order to follow the one God has chosen as king. It's as if 1 Samuel 20 anticipates Jesus' teaching on discipleship in the Gospels. I know that sounds a bit historically backwards to have the illustration before you get the teaching, but that's sometimes how the Scriptures work, particularly from Old Testament to New. You get the illustration first, you get the shadow first, and you get the substance later. That's how this text is. Many of the truths that Jesus would teach in His ministry are illustrated here in Jonathan's devotion to David. And the connection comes through this theme of covenant. Covenant. So, with that theme in mind, I invite you to notice with me three truths from this chapter, each one having to do with covenant. The first is is found in verses 1 to 11, where we see a covenant appeal. A covenant appeal. You'll remember at the close of chapter 19, David was hiding in Ramah, seeking refuge with Samuel the prophet. But he was only able to stay there until Saul showed up with his goons. And now David is on the run again. And he goes to the last person he has left, his friend Jonathan. But surprisingly, the two men don't see eye to eye. At least not at first. Notice verse 1. David asks, what have I done? What is my guilt? And what is my sin? It's clear to David that Saul wants him dead. What's not so clear is the reason. 
That's where the disagreement starts. Notice verse 2. Jonathan isn't convinced. There's a plot. He's not going to kill you. It's not so. That might sound strange to us considering Saul just asked Jonathan in the last chapter to kill David. But remember, Saul's behavior has been erratic at best. One minute he's fine, and the next minute he's hurling spears at people. So perhaps Jonathan just chalks this up to another one of his father's mood swings. I mean, you can almost hear him saying to David, hey, let's just calm down. You know how dad can be. Let's just calm this. It's going to be all right. Jonathan thinks maybe he's overreacting. David doesn't let up. Notice verse 3. As the Lord lives, David swears, there is but a step between me and death. Friends, that's the strongest statement that David can make. He swears on God's character that Saul is after him. He swears on God's name. He's about to die. And that, it seems, is enough to convince Jonathan to listen. Verse 4, he agrees to help David, whatever it takes. So with some sort of agreement in place, David proposes a test to reveal Saul's intentions. Understand this test is primarily for Jonathan's benefit. David knows full well that Saul is after him. But the test will settle the question once and for all. And the test is really quite simple. Notice verse 5 and following. The new moon feast is coming up and David will skip it. This would be unusual for an official in the king's court. So when Saul asks for an explanation, Jonathan will say David went home to worship with his family. And how Saul responds to that statement is the key. If Saul is fine with it, then David is safe. But if Saul is angry, then there will be no doubt David is in danger. He proposes a test. Now at this point, we have to answer a question that we might easily overlook. I overlooked it when I first started reading the chapter, but I don't think we should overlook it. Here's the question. If Saul is trying to kill David, then why would David seek help from Saul's son? On the surface, it's insane. How can David have any confidence that Jonathan won't double-cross him and kill him right now? How can David have any sort of confidence? The answer, friends, is covenant. Notice verse 8. David appeals to the covenant between himself and Jonathan. Therefore, deal kindly with your servant, for you have brought your servant into a covenant of the Lord with you. That phrase, deal kindly, is the key. It translates a rich Hebrew word that is more often translated steadfast love or loving kindness. Listen to how one Old Testament scholar, Dale Davis, describes this covenant love. I I can't say it any better than this. So listen to what he says. It's not merely love, but loyal love. Not merely kindness, but dependable kindness. Not merely affection, but affection that has committed itself. Or as another scholar, Alec Motier, writes, it combines the warmth of God's fellowship with the security of God's faithfulness. The warmth of God's fellowship with the security of God's faithfulness. That's steadfast love. Friends, do you hear the confidence this covenant gives to David? This is why David appeals to Jonathan. Not because they have shared interests. Not because they have a common experience. Not even because they're really good friends. David appeals to Jonathan because of this rock-solid commitment of covenant love. And Jonathan, in turn, pledges his commitment. Notice verse 9. 
Whatever Jonathan learns from his father, he will surely tell his friend because Jonathan is constrained by covenant love. Friends, do you know where David got the idea of covenant love? Steadfast love? Do you know where he got the idea? He didn't make it up. And it didn't come from the fact that he and Jonathan just had a really strong bond. David got this idea from the Lord's description of himself. In Exodus 34, when Moses goes up on Mount Sinai, the Lord comes down and He declares His name to Moses. It's one of the most important moments in all of the Bible. With His own mouth, God speaks His name. Do you remember what His name is? The Lord. The Lord. A God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. There's that phrase. Steadfast love. It's the same word for deal kindly in verse 8. It's the same idea. You see, that's the takeaway here. It's the love of God for His people that enables His people to then love one another. David doesn't grab this out of thin air. It comes from God. Brothers and sisters, it's here that we begin to see just how much this chapter has to say to us. By His grace, God has initiated a covenant with us. Not an earthly covenant like David and Jonathan, but a greater covenant, a new covenant sealed with Christ's blood. And in this covenant, we have the ultimate refuge. When we are assailed and threatened, we can go to the Almighty God and we can appeal to this covenant. This is why the writer to the Hebrews gives us that wonderful exhortation. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus... Let us draw near with a heart, a true heart, and full assurance of faith. It's a covenant appeal. Consider that privilege, brothers and sisters. Consider that privilege to be able to enter God's presence, appeal to the covenant we have through Christ, and then know God will respond to that appeal with steadfast love. What an astounding confidence! And it's ours through Jesus Christ. But amazingly, it doesn't stop there. This is what 1 Samuel 20 is doing. It's showing us how the covenant love pushes us farther. God's love not only binds us to Himself, but then it compels and enables us to show the same kind of love towards one another. Again, listen to the writer to the Hebrews from the same passage. After describing our appeal to God, he then writes of our ministry to one another. Let us consider how to stir one another up to love to love and good works. Friends, do you see the outworking of this covenant love, this steadfast love? God binds Himself to us with steadfast love. And that love not only sustains us before God, praise the Lord, but then it also enables us to care for one another with the same kind of covenant care. So back to 1 Samuel 20. Is this scene, is this scene describing David and Jonathan's commitment to one another? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. But at the same time, the language David uses, the language of covenant. Listen, friends, all scripture is God-breathed, right? Not just the ideas, but the 
individual words and phrases down to the grammatical structures. So the fact that David uses the covenant word in verse 8 is not random. It's not like, oh, that's coincidental. That's nice. That sounds like Exodus 34. That's interesting. No! It's not interesting. It's the point. It's the point of the text. David's use of this covenant language directs our attention to the love that flows from God's own nature and defines the lives of His people. It's about more than just their friendship. What a rich and soul-nourishing truth this is, brothers and sisters. David's covenant appeal to Jonathan gave him confidence, and it also directs our attention beyond their friendship to God Himself and to the work God is doing for us and in us and through us. It's a covenant appeal. And incredibly, and in, incredibly, friends, there's more to see from God's Word. Let's turn our attention now to the second truth, this time from verses 12 to 17, where we see a covenant hope. A covenant hope. You'll notice in verse 10, David asks Jonathan who will tell him about Saul's response. Remember, David won't be at the feast, so he'll need someone to fill him in. Jonathan has a solution to that problem, but he doesn't share that solution until verse 18. Instead, it's Jonathan's turn to emphasize covenant. And he does so in striking fashion. If you scan through verses 12 to 17, what should get your attention is how packed they are with covenantal language. It's almost as though Jonathan says to David, hold on friend, before we get to the rest of our plan, let's go over these covenant blessings and demands one more time. You see, verses 12-17 through are repetitive. They're not necessary for the narrative. They don't advance the story at all. Instead, they focus us on covenant. And that's the point. Jonathan essentially goes over the same ground again because it's that important. So notice with me a couple of features of Jonathan's covenant emphasis. First off, Jonathan renews his promise to keep covenant. Look at verse 12. Jonathan assures David that he will pass on whatever information he learns. David may be absent, but he won't be in the dark. Jonathan will fill him in. Then to seal that promise, Jonathan invokes an oath against himself. Notice verse 13. But should it please my father to do you harm, the Lord do so to Jonathan, and more also, if I do not disclose it to you and send you away, that you may go in safety. Friends, you, hear, you can hear the depth of Jonathan's commitment there. He puts himself at risk. He's saying, God punish me if Saul hurts you and I don't tell you. This is costly commitment. That's the kind of bond these two men share. Jonathan renews his promise even at a great cost. But Jonathan's not finished. He then requests for the covenant to be extended to the future. Look at verse 15. This is staggering to me. Jonathan asks for this same steadfast love to be shown to his descendants, to his household. On the surface, that is a strange request. David is on the run for his life. It, I mean, it, it, it appears to David and, and Jonathan that the, day, the, the end is in sight. The days are numbered. David's life is, is virtually over. The king wants to kill him. And yet, Jonathan is speaking about future generations? 
Why would he speak about future generations if David appears to almost be dead? Well, notice the end of verse 15 where Jonathan makes a massive statement. Do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. Now, we got to slow down here to listen to exactly what Jonathan is saying. Notice he mentions the face of the earth, not just the face of Israel. And notice he speaks of every one of David's enemies and not just his father Saul. You see, at this point, Jonathan speaks better than he knows. He speaks of a universal rule over a universal kingdom. Jonathan sees more than this moment. By faith, he sees a future day when an heir of David will reign not just on Israel's throne, but over the kingdom of God. And that's why Jonathan extends the covenant to future generations. Because he sees by faith that your only hope in God's kingdom comes in connection with this man, David. Let's not gloss over this, friends. This is a stunning expression of faith on Jonathan's part. Think about what he faces at this moment. Just think about it for for a second. Standing there in that field, Jonathan has two options. He can either live for an earthly kingdom, the kingdom of Israel, or he can live for another kingdom, a greater kingdom that is yet to come. Which kingdom will Jonathan choose? The choice is significant. To be king of Israel means a life of power, luxury, and prestige. It's a chance for Jonathan to build a legacy for himself. To enshrine his name among the great rulers of the age. To be the king is to have the world. And all Jonathan has to do is strike down this unarmed fugitive standing in the field next to him. Just one flick of the wrist. And Jonathan has everything. But by faith, that's not what Jonathan does. He chooses instead to seek a greater kingdom. A kingdom that is to come. He chooses to deny himself the fleeting pleasures of this life in order to gain the lasting pleasure of allegiance to God's King. Friends, does this not remind you of something King Jesus would say centuries later to His own disciples? Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. That's what Jonathan does standing in that field. Even though he does not see everything clearly, he sees enough. He sees enough to know that his only hope is this greater king ruled, this greater kingdom ruled by a greater king who's going to be connected with this man, David. Friends, what a soul-stirring call this is to us. You can gain the world and lose your soul. That's what this moment in the field is about. That's what 12 through 17 is telling you. You can gain the world and lose your soul. You can attain every goal you ever set and still miss what life is actually about. You can find greatness in this world and miss the kingdom of God. Let Jonathan remind you, let his example stir you. Life is found in laying down your pursuits in order to live by faith for the greater kingdom that is to come. 
And while that pursuit is hard now, it comes with the unwavering hope that there is a day when Christ will reign and all who are bound to Him by faith in the new covenant will receive an imperishable crown of glory that never fades and far surpasses any crown you could ever receive in this life. That's what Jonathan is saying when he says, the Lord will strike down all the enemies of David from the face of the earth. He's saying, I don't want to be one of those enemies, David. I bow to you. I trust that in you there is safety. In you, God is working. He doesn't see everything, but he sees enough to know that God's work is found in this man. Live for that hope, brothers and sisters, not the hope of passing things of this age, but the hope of eternal life in the new covenant with Christ. Jonathan, Jonathan's life exhibited this kind of covenant hope and his example now calls us to live for the hope of the new covenant, the hope of eternal life in Christ's kingdom, the kingdom of God. It's such a stirring picture. Well, as we continue on in the chapter, we find that our third truth is closely connected with the second in verses 18 to 34, we see a covenant cost. A covenant appeal, covenant hope, and now a covenant cost. Remember in verse 10, David asked who would notify him of Saul's response. How am I going to know what he says? In verse 18 and following, Jonathan provides the answer. He's devised a signal. Jonathan will shoot three arrows into the field where David is hiding. Then he'll send a servant after them. If Jonathan tells the servant the arrows are on the near side, then David is safe. If he says the arrows are beyond you, then David must run. It's a pretty simple system. And now that it's in place, it's time to put everything into action. Jonathan heads to the feast while David hides in the field. At first, Saul doesn't ask about David's absence. Notice verse 26. Saul thinks David is ceremonially unclean. Typically with these kinds of feasts, there was a purification ritual you had to go through in order to be able to attend. And Saul assumes perhaps David missed that ritual. He's, he's, he's just unclean. He can't be here. But when the second day of the feast comes and David still isn't there, Saul demands an explanation. So just as they planned, Jonathan tells Saul the story about David going to Bethlehem. And just as David anticipated, Saul erupts in anger. Look at verse 30. Then Saul's anger was kindled against Jonathan, and he said to him, You son of a perverse, rebellious woman, do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? I was going to try to paraphrase Saul's words, but it would be far too inappropriate to do so in public. Let's just say this is about as vile and coarse as it can get. This is one of the worst insults that you could hurl at someone. Sometimes the Bible translates these kinds of, uh, our English Bibles translate these kinds of idioms in ways that sound kind of formal to us, like you son of a perverse rebellious woman, like it's a, like a Shakespearean play. That's not what it's like. It's vile, it's coarse, it's awful. It's one of the worst things you could say to someone. And Saul screams it at his own son. In his eyes, Jonathan is a disgrace. He's brought shame on himself and on his entire family. 
The reason for Saul's anger is then clearly expressed in verse 31. For as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, neither you nor your kingdom shall be established. Notice Saul's language. Neither you nor your kingdom shall be established. That's all, that's all Saul cares about. Power. Self. What I can get. And in his mind, that's all Jonathan should care about as well. Saul has no time for covenants. Who has time for covenants? Who has time for devotion when politics and intrigue needs to be carried out? Stop wasting your time, Jonathan. That's what Saul says. This is about doing whatever it takes to maintain your position. It's such a small, twisted view of the world, is it not? But at this point, that's the kind of world Saul inhabits. It's only as big as his own desires. And so Saul issues the one command that makes sense to his depraved mind. The end of the verse. Therefore send and bring him to me, for he shall surely die. But once again, there's more at work here than Saul realizes. In a moving display of covenant loyalty, Jonathan defies his father and gives up his place at the power table. Notice verse 32. Then Jonathan answered his father, Why should he be put to death? What has he done? You see, for Jonathan, covenant trumps politics. Covenant runs deeper than family. Jonathan will not turn on David. He protects his friend. But it's more than protection. Jonathan also identifies with David. Notice verse 33. But Saul hurled his spear at him to strike him. So Jonathan knew that his father was determined to put him to death. Friends, you see the identification between the two men? David was once the target of Saul's spear. Now Jonathan is the target. David's seat is empty at the table. Now Jonathan's seat is empty at the table. Jonathan's loyalty leads him not only to protect David, but to identify with him even to the point of enduring hostility for David's sake. This is the pinnacle of covenant loyalty. When faced with the opportunity to hold on to his earthly connections, Jonathan chooses instead to be counted with the Lord's anointed, even though it costs him everything he has. In the Gospel of Luke, chapter 14, the Lord Jesus told His disciples the following, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Brothers and sisters, there is a cost to discipleship. And Jonathan's life is a picture of enduring that cost. He's teaching us what it looks like to walk the road of allegiance to God's King. It's costly. It's not easy. It requires putting God's King ahead of everything else that competes for your allegiance, your family, your career, your ambition, your own life. Jonathan paid that kind of cost. And it's the same kind of cost we must pay if we seek to follow the crucified Christ. Discipleship is costly. Are you paying that cost? It's costly, friends. And yet, at the same time, I can't help but notice the contrast between Jonathan 
and his father. The two men are so strikingly different. I take them to be strikingly different in order to show us the two ways that you can live in response to the Lord's anointed. They're so strikingly different. For all of his earthly power, Saul is a slave. Do you see it? He's a slave. He is enslaved to his own depravity. He is shackled by his own selfish desires. Jonathan, on the other hand, loses his earthly position, but is free in a way that Saul cannot understand. Jonathan is free to be faithful. Jonathan is free to live for something greater than himself. Again, I think of the Lord Jesus in Mark 8, telling His disciples, whoever would save his life will lose it but whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. Discipleship is costly, brothers and sisters, but it's also rewarding. More rewarding than anything this life can offer. And the reward is freedom. Freedom from sin. Freedom from self. Freedom from our small little pathetic kingdoms that are ruled by us and our puny little desires. Free from all of that and free to magnify God's King. That's life, friends. The reward is freedom. Freedom that leads to eternal life. So, I would plead with you, brothers and sisters, by God's grace, let's pay this cost. We want a distinctive witness in our church. I want a distinctive witness in my life. You want a distinctive witness in your life, in your neighborhoods. We want the Gospel to have power. Then pay the cost. Jesus is not joking when He says, unless you hate your father and mother, you cannot be My disciple. He means I over me over everything. Christ over everything. God's King over everything. Get up and leave your seat at the power table like Jonathan. That's what it looks like. That's what it requires to live with an impact for the Kingdom of God. Let's not reduce discipleship to just showing up on Sundays and writing our tithe checks and going to our Bible studies. Let's make discipleship what it really is. Laying down our lives for the sake of the brothers and sisters. Laying down our lives for the sake of the nations. Laying down our lives to say the uncomfortable truths that people don't want to hear. Maybe so much of our Christian witness in this world is weak and frail because we're not seeing what Jonathan is showing us here. We're not hearing the words of the Lord Jesus. That if you want to be My disciple, you've got to lay down your life. Let's ask God's Spirit to give us the strength to live with the mindset of the Apostle Paul in Philippians 3. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Jonathan paid a cost for his covenant faithfulness. And his example now stands like a banner from this text, calling us to live with the same kind of costly discipleship that magnifies God's King. The next morning, Jonathan heads out to the field. Notice verse 35 and following. He shoots an arrow and he sends his servant to get it. 
as the servant runs, Jonathan calls out, Is not the arrow beyond you? That's the signal. David has to flee. But before he goes, the Lord mercifully allows the two friends a moment to say goodbye. The emotions here are raw and full of grief. The two friends embrace and weep together with David weeping the most. It's the first time in the text that David's affection for Jonathan is described more than Jonathan's. David weeps the most. It's a sorrowful moment. But the chapter doesn't end with only the emotion of sorrow. The chapter ends with their sorrow comforted by covenant. Look at verse 42. And notice how covenant sustains the friends in their grief. Jonathan says, go in peace because we have sworn both of us in the name of the Lord. Go in peace. How can, David, how can Jonathan tell David to go in peace? There's nothing peaceful about these circumstances. Saul wants David dead. And yet, Jonathan sends him away in peace. Why? Because of the covenant between them. You see, from beginning to end, covenant is the theme, and covenant answers the sorrow. David may have trouble with Saul, but with Jonathan there is peace, and that peace should give him a sense of comfort in the midst of his trouble. Friends, this is what a covenant does. It provides an anchor, a safe harbor in the midst of sorrow. This is certainly true in our earthly relationships, whether it be the covenant of marriage or even the covenant of church membership. Certainly true. But for believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, this is true in an even greater sense. Remember, we are a covenant people. God has bound us to Himself in the bonds of covenant. Not an earthly covenant, but a new covenant sealed with Christ's blood. And in that covenant bond, we have peace. Peace with God, Romans 5.1. Peace that passes all understanding and guards our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. So, what's true in 1 Samuel is also true for us as Christians. It's covenant that answers the sorrow. It's covenant that comforts us in grief. It's covenant that protects us and prepares us to enter the kingdom of God. May God the Father comfort our hearts by His Spirit with the truth of our covenant bond to the Lord Jesus Christ. And may that comfort sustain us in faith until the day King Jesus returns and receives us to Himself. Amen. Let's pray.